Hello, everybody. We are back. Um, apologies for the super long hiatus. Um, I just got out of a really long um, relationship. Didn't necessarily get out. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I got dumped. Um, but as sad as it is, you know, I appreciate the relationship. I still uh, love and respect the individual, but you know, we got to go our own ways now. So again, sorry, everybody, for the pause and posting. I had a ton of great opportunities through the playoffs to keep posting, but it was, um, you know, just uh, just recovering, recentering, and refocusing after um, that occurrence. So without any further ado, let's get into it. I want to talk about the Celtics season, the NBA Finals, where it all led to, um, and, you know, just kind of go through the Bucks series, the Heat, and the Finals, and kind of recap, you know, where the Celtics are at and where they're going. Um, going to be a really, you know, really promising season, even though they didn't get it done. Um, this has been one of those interesting teams where, you know, normally people say, it's not levels. You don't normally go in the playoffs, then you go deeper, 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 and then you get to the championship and then you win it. Like that's a very odd, you know, path. But I do think it could happen for this Celtics team when you actually look at the history of how they've been doing over the past three years. They've been consistently getting better, going farther than certain things. For example, the inclusion of Kyrie Irving on the team actually took them back in their playoff performances. They were having worse playoff performances. The first year that he left, Jalen Brown was injured. The roster was a mess. That was another step back. And then last year, they were able to retool, reload up the roster, and then um, make that excellent run that we saw. Now, the Bucks, um, the Celtics, of course, they swept the Nets, went into the Bucks series. That was a really, really tough series. The Bucks were a championship-caliber team, even though they didn't have Chris Middleton. Um, they really pushed the Celtics, and the Celtics leaned on their defense and were able to use their defense to win that series. You know, the Bucks had a great defensive game plan that limited the Celtics. They basically played the 2-3 zone, two in the front, three in the back, and kind of dared the Celtics to shoot threes. And there's not a lot of players on the Celtics who are really good spot-up three-point shooters. Um, our guys like to shoot threes in rhythm. Our guys can shoot threes really well, especially when they're wide open off of action within the flow of the offense. But taking a three when they're just slightly open is really not the forte of the Celtics players at this point. Jason Tatum can be streaky from three, so can Jalen Brown. And the players who are more reliable, like let's say an Al Horford, is not a volume three-point shooter. And when you put that type of volume of threes onto an Al Horford, his percentages come down towards the mean. You know, Marcus Smart, we know, is a, you know not the best three-point shooter. He can do it. Sometimes it works, but often um, the percentages can start to drop when the volume increases. So that was a really intelligent way to play defense against the Celtics team. 
um, this was something that the Heat ended up mirroring to a degree when we played them. Um, but throughout the, Celt the Celtics versus the Bucks and the Celtics versus the Heat, they were able to... Um, the Celtics were able to lock them down on the other end of the court. And that's the difference between what happened in those two series and what happened in the Warriors series. Now, there's three primary reasons why I think the Warriors beat the Celtics. Um, and I'm going to, you know, basically, I think when the Celtics lost game six versus the Heat, I was pretty upset, and it wasn't because I thought they were going to lose the series versus the Heat. It's because I thought, you know, if you looked at Golden State's path to the finals, it was far easier. They didn't have to play as many good teams. I don't know if I – I probably haven't mentioned this because I haven't made an episode since the, since the sweep of the Nets, but this was the hardest playoff run in recent history that I can remember to get to the finals. This was, you're playing the betting favorite to win the finals in the first round in the Nets. Then you go and play the Bucks, who are, you know, a champion in their own right, defending champions. Then you go play the Heat, which is the actual number one seed in the conference. And then you move on to play, you know, the vaunted warriors who of course are, you know, experienced multiple championships and all that stuff. So I think, you know, to, when the Celtics lost that game six versus the heat, I was upset because I know how difficult this playoffs has been. And these guys were going to be significantly more tired than the Warriors. I don't think we saw that in games one, two, and three, but I think we did start to see it in games four, five, and six, that the Celtics were just more tired than the Warriors and had less in the tank than the Warriors. It was a combination of the difficulty of the playoff run in addition to the Celtics not really being able to use a lot of the players on the bench. The Warriors were consistently exposing the Celtics bench players and the Celtics weren't really doing the same on the other end. Um, this led the starters to be overused and overplayed. Um, it's difficult to disagree with the decision when you look at how poorly some of the Celtics bench players were playing in that series. I do think the Celtics might have had a better chance honestly it's tough because you want to just try to win every game and win it right at the line you know just get right to that you know look your opponent in the eye and beat them but it, you know with retrospect you might say it might have been worth it in games three and four um or you know games four and five to purposefully rest some of the starters knowing that the Warriors were going to come back with a vengeance and try to, you know, boat race the Celtics out of the series, which is what ended up happening. But I want to talk about three things with the Warriors series. Um, one thing that I think it's important, and I just want to touch on this briefly because I really hate talking about this. All sports fans, if you're a true fan, you hate talking about this because it's not 
it's such a cheap excuse in some ways, but I do think here it has some legitimacy. I've complained in the podcast in the past about how established players, especially those who are considered stars or superstars or have championships under their belt, simply receive better treatment from the referees. They're given the benefit of the doubt on fouls. They're given the benefit of the doubt when they look like they may have been fouled. You know, if you look at, excuse me. (coughs) (coughs) Sorry about that, guys. If you look at game two of that series, that game the refereeing was completely abhorrent, horrible, to the point where I do not view that game as a legitimate contest. Now, I understand if you disagree. I understand if you haven't watched basketball for years, if you don't have a good concept of what a foul is and what a foul isn't. But the issue the NBA have got themselves into is the casual fan um, has no clue what is a foul and what isn't a foul. The refs are effectively just picking different instances from the sky and just deciding whether they believe that to be a foul or not. And you can see the same instance of the same contact on the other end of the floor, and it cannot be called, depending on the individuals who are involved in the situation. You know, I've played basketball for years. I watch the games with guys who have played basketball for years. We've seen the game refed for years. Good refs, bad refs, consistent refs, inconsistent refs. The quality of refereeing in the NBA is so low. It is so poor that um, it's difficult to watch. It's difficult to watch even when the team is doing well. And when my team is winning, it's still hard to watch because you you look at certain situations and you go, hey, that's that's a foul on the Celtics or hey, that's a you know, even when it's against my team, I don't want people to think it's just me being a homer and trying to, you know, come up with excuses of why they lost. Like the refereeing was just bad. You can and I think the refereeing was also very poor in some of the later games as well. I think the Warriors consistently got a better whistle. Game one, I think, was the only true fair whistle. And not even that that was a decent game for the Celtics. The Celtics kind of won with this flurry of threes at the end that all happened to go down and it was all working. And that was awesome. But I thought game one was a very fair whistle to both sides. Now, game two was pretty much a fraudulent game. I mean, you can go back and watch it and look at some of the poor calls you have Draymond Green fouling on every play, barely getting called. He, there was a moment in the game where he decked Grant Williams in the middle of the court, and Grant Williams was called for the foul, for, like, obstructing his path, when realistically Draymond went out of his way to set a moving pick on Grant. Which, again, this is something people do in the NBA a lot. You make a cut, but really you're making the cut to push the defender out of the way. So you kind of bump into the defender and just shove them out of the way anyways. you know. But for the call to go against Grant when he neither initiated contact, he literally is just standing there doing nothing. Draymond Green decks him over and Grant gets called for the foul. 
it just shows you the kind of inconsistency within the refereeing that's so common. There was another play with Jordan Poole where he went up for a layup. Jalen Brown went up like he was going to contest it and then kind of sidestepped to let him go by. Poole ends up falling after the play and Jalen gets called for, for a foul there. Was there contact there? There might have been a tiniest bit of contact, but it it was not an amount of contact that you would expect an NBA player to fall over from. I think Poole fell over because Jalen Brown was near him, and he was thinking, maybe I'll get a call, and he did, and it made no sense. But again, you know, we could go down all the calls in the game, and it wouldn't change anything. So I'm just going to stick a pin in that. After game two was over, I basically, you know, I basically was checked out of the series because in in my head, it's like, even if the Warriors win, I only view three of those wins as legitimate. I don't view game two. And that's, and this is the other thing about it. It's not that I think the Warriors couldn't have beaten the Celtics with a fair whistle. It's just, I would have liked to see that. Like, I think it's totally possible, but I think it would have been more difficult. I think it would have been, you know, maybe seven games. Maybe it would have been six games anyways. You know, you never really know. But just really disheartening from a fan perspective um, to see that kind of refereeing on games where, you know, and I'm not betting on any of these games, especially the NBA, because how shitty the refing is. But, like, people are putting money on this. People are trying to predict what's going to happen. And you have individuals picking calls and instances out of the air in a manner that is – inconsistent and verging on fraudulent verging on it it makes the fans suspect that there's some kind of conspiracy which personally i know for a fact there there probably isn't like a greater conspiracy to have the celtics not win but it's it gets to be so bad that that's the kind of questions it invokes and that's a very dangerous place to be for the nba because you don't want that Like, personally, I think it's just incompetence. I think it's the referees are not paid well. It's not a desirable position. You have to get yelled at by guys who make way more than you all day, who are entitled and who have higher status than you. I can't imagine it's a fun job. And that's why I think the quality of refereeing is so poor. It's just a combination of refs getting caught up in the star power of players. And then in addition to that, not having a lot of decent refs to pick from at the end of the day because people are pursuing other positions where they can make more and consistent money over time as opposed to, you know, brutal work schedules, you know, moving around the country um, just to make a, you know, a menial, like a normal-ish amount of money, like a normal living but it's not even necessarily like enough to create competition within the position, which is also a big issue. You have games where the players are making millions of dollars. The outcome of games is going to determine millions of dollars for them. And the overall betting markets are betting millions, if not billions of dollars on some of these games. And the referees are being paid, you know, somewhere between 70 and $150,000 a year. I mean, I don't even know if you can make 150K. Maybe some of them are making that much, but for the amount they're moving around and working, you know, you know, speaking on that, I'm going to, I'm going to look this up right now. 
NBA rep salary, just so we can. 180000 to $500,000. Hmm. Interesting. That's a bit higher than I would have thought. But honestly, I think... I mean, with that... With that amount, you wouldn't expect it to be as absolutely shitty as it is. So, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's not the NBA's fault. Maybe it's literally the... The communication with the referees about how to call the game is all messed up. Maybe when they make it, they just think, you know, they're rogue with a whistle and they just call whatever they feel. Um, in any case, moving on from that, game two was completely fraudulent. The, the calls throughout the series were horrible. But let's put that aside and talk about the refereeing, um, not the refereeing, talk about the actual basketball aspect of what happened. Now, the Warriors basically copied what the Bucks did on defense. They really, really tried to just prevent Celtics players from getting to the hole, from getting inside, from dribbling inside. For us to win, we needed to take open threes and take and make contested jumpers, which are some of the hardest shots to make in the NBA. Now, on the contrary, because the Warriors are so dangerous from outside the three-point arc, this allowed them to open up the Celtics' defense and get um, get better opportunities than a lot of the other teams that the Celtics had played. Um, but the thing is, you know, if you look at let me just let me just stick in this one moment on the topic I was just talking about. The Celtics offense is really what let them down in the finals. That's what let them down. It was too many turnovers, minimizing good opportunities or not maximizing the opportunities that they were given by the defense, trying to play their game too much. They kept running this set. Um, when they would go down the court, where they would set a double screen at the top. And when you watched it, after a while, the Warriors would have three players at the top. They wouldn't even move for the screens. They would just stand where they were, and then each of them would just take the guy who ends up being closest to them, because they knew it was going to be three guys, and they knew they were going to do the same thing. That kind of movement when the opponent is predicting what you're going to move you're moving for no reason you're running around and the warriors are standing still and they know how you're going to come out of that play so i wish we would have stopped doing kind of redundant movements that the warriors had clearly predicted and were onto um, but in addition to that the celtics needed to take more open threes and take a lot more jump shots they had a height advantage. A lot of the times the Warriors would have scrappy, shorter players in the front of the defense. And this would allow them to contest the dribbles. When JB or JT are trying to dribble into the towards the hoop, the shorter players are, are closer to the ball, basically. Because those players are taller than them. They're under them to a degree they're head up with where the dribbles are coming down. So this is why, and they're attacking those dribbles. Now, 
the solution to this is you shoot a jump shot because if you rise up with that ball, now the shorter player can't really block your shot because they're significantly lower than you. They're shorter than you. You jump about the same height. You shoot over their head. The Celtics did not do that enough. The Celtics also at certain points were petrified to shoot open threes. Were they shooting a great percentage from three? No. But you have to take what the defense gives you. You know, and I understand there were people, there were fans, Celtics fans in the room that are like, oh, just take it to the hole and just stick it in there, dunk it or whatever. You just can't do that when they have four to five players buzzing around the rim. That's all that they cared about. They were all around the rim going in to basically stop Celtics layups and get the rebound. And, you know, this this kind of defense was very effective because I think it took the Celtics out of, it definitely took the Celtics out of their game, but we needed to allow ourselves to be taken out of our game. We needed to allow for, um, allow for the hoop to be shut off and to not take it to the rack unless given a great opportunity and to effectively try to shoot more outside and especially shoot more threes, regardless of the percentage. Because some nights you're going to have a shit percentage. You're going to shoot 20% from three. And then a different night, you're going to get lucky and you're going to go to 40% from three or higher. And you would come away with a win those nights instead of losing because you tried to drive it a million times and you lost a bunch of three-on-one drives. You know, it's just that is less tenable than taking the open shot that the defense is giving you. And, you know, on the other side, I'm sure some people were a little dissatisfied with the Boston defense, but I think the defense did their job, really. They really did. Now, here's the difference. When you look at Milwaukee and the Heat, the Celtics were able to hold those teams most of the time during the series to... With Milwaukee, it was like under 90 points. With Miami, it was like somewhere between 190 points. In the Warriors series, the Celtics basically held them under 110 points in most of the games. That's that's as good as you can ask for against the best offense in the NBA. Like that is like as good as you can hope for. So the real issue began, we could not score over 110 points versus the Warriors' defense, which is not a particularly good defense. You know, they have certain... They have certain qualities about them that are good. They have scrappy, shorter defenders. They have, you know, Draymond Green, who effectively fouls with impunity and, and doesn't get called for it no matter what. I mean, literally said the quiet part out loud, said he gets calls differently because of his stature in the league, which is absolutely fucking stupid. It makes no sense. If you think that makes sense, you're an idiot. Um, Sorry, hate to hate to go that way, but we just did. It makes no sense to have uneven refereeing over players because they have different statures in the league. It's it's ridiculous to even think about it that way. The entire purpose of referees are to be impartial and to call based on the rule book. Um, so at the end of the day there, it was really the Celtics offense that let them down. Um, the defense did as well as you could expect in the circumstances. 
Um, and you got to give it to Golden State for the, the offense they have is absolutely ridiculous. Even to get 110 points, like they were going nuts on offense. Um, and that sort of outside in attack was proven to be very effective. Being able to set screens on the outside, get open, just get people open for three, even if it's just for a sliver. And then um, when you try to double out or add an extra man into the situation, then people cut towards the net, which causes um, mismatches there and issues. Um, you know, basically, um, I also think the Celtics, some of the defensive choices we made were a little bit tough. I think having, trying to play drop coverage on Steph Curry was very foolish. I don't know why we were doing that. I wish we had made Steph Curry drive to the hoop a lot more because, even though he has a better percentage to hit from two if he's driving, it's still a lot more effort and a lot more... I guess I wish the bigs played farther out on the three-point line. Because when you have Steph driving, I, I wish we kind of did this. Because what would happen is when, when Steph would be at the three-point line, the bigs would go too high. He would drive in, a guy would peel off, and he would make the right play, whether it's shoot over the guy's head or pass to the open guy, depending on the situation. I, what I wish we had done is play the switching defense, have the bigs go high out to the three-point line to really obstruct that three-point shot. Then if he drives, basically don't give any help to the big man, let the big man, whoever it is, whether it's Rob or Al, let him breathe down Steph Curry's neck and try to swat the shot from the back or obstruct the shot from the back as he's going in. Steph is going to feel that heat. He's going to have to either do a blazing fast layup to try to get it off before the big can get back, or he's going to have to do something else that's going to require an incredible amount of energy playing and drop and letting him just shoot threes from the back, that's easy for him. Not only is it easy, he has the potential to get more points um, with the three-point shots, more points per possession. So, you know, realistically, I would have liked us to put more of the burden on Steph Curry, you know, and playing man-on-man put a ton of burden on Steph Curry. In the games when the Celtics played a lot of man-to-man just switching, Steph was really one of the only guys who could create off the dribble. You know, Wiggins had his moments, but he had to be on the right defender. There were guys on the Celtics that could defend Wiggins decently well. When Wiggins was in space and wasn't being covered or when he had a mismatch, he was excellent. Um, But um, he wasn't going to bring it home for them. He was a release valve when people were paying too much attention to Steph. Wiggins could do something pretty athletic, and that um, that certainly helped him. And Wiggins played well on the defensive end as well. Got to give him credit there. Um, you know, I think this definitely takes away from Kevin Durant's legacy. You know, it's not that, you know, the team was way more ridiculous with him on it, but with Wiggins there, you can see that they can replicate the similar types of performances. It's not that 
you know, they still have the ability to get all the points that the older Warrior teams did. But this Celtics defense was a little bit different this year. It was doing a lot of stuff to different teams. And I think them just getting to 110 or close to that every game was a good accomplishment. It was a good offensive showing from the Warriors. Um, You know, even though I think that's kind of the best the Celtics could have hoped to do to them is get them down from like 130 to 120, get them down to 110, at least within striking distance. It became a lot about the Warriors' defense and the Celtics' offense at the end of the day, which is why I think we saw the trade moves that we did, getting Brogdon, who's a guy who can shoot those spot-up threes. If the Warriors, if let's say in the future, the Celtics run into a defense where everyone's walking off the key, Brogdon is happy to just bomb threes from outside. So is Gallinari. So those are two guys that can serve as a release valve if teams are too focused on blocking off the rim, which is really important. Gallinari can also post up, which is another thing that the Celtics could have done against the Warriors, but the amount of players who actually have that ability on the team is lower than you might think. Um, it's kind of an older skill in the NBA. A lot of the young guys aren't as good of posting a guy up and being able to score consistently in that situation. You know, JT and JB like to score with speed and athleticism, not necessarily physicality, um, even though they can do it sometimes if it's a pure mismatch. But when we were getting that close to the rim anyways, a lot of double teams were coming. So having, you know, a really savvy guy like Gallinari who can post up, who can also distribute, who can also shoot threes, I think that'll help a lot. You know, that's the type of guy. Him and Brogdon are the type of guys that can come off the bench in the finals and play good minutes and not be necessarily exposed defensively. You know, Gallinari, we'll see how well he can do defensively. Um. It's always easier to play defense when your teammates are playing good defense. So um, as a Celtics fan, I hope that he's shown to be like a solid defensive player when his teammates are actually doing their job. Brogdon, we know, is uh, decent defensively already. So pretty good pickups there with the Celtics trying to kind of solve some of the issues they ran into um, in the postseason. You know, I like that the Celtics are staying pat with not trying to get Kevin Durant, not overreacting. You know, I heard some stories about, like, you know, Jalen Brown wants out of Boston or something or other, and I don't know if there's any legitimacy to that. If Jalen Brown really does want out of Boston, like, this is – it's all up to Brad. Because if I'm Brad Stevens, you know, I have an honest conversation with Jalen Brown. Hey, you know, do you want to be here? Do you not want to be here? You know, I I love Jalen Brown. I want him to be on the Celtics forever. I think he's a great player. I think he was the best player throughout the playoffs consistently. And not to say that Tatum wasn't amazing, because he was, but Jalen Brown was incredibly consistent through all of the series. Consistently good defense, consistently good offense. Yes, he has turnovers, but the thing is, with Jalen Brown, his turnovers are normally dribble related. So they look really bad when you're watching it. But when you actually look at the end of the game, like 90% of the time, Smart and Tatum have more turnovers than Brown. So even like, I don't like the turnovers. They look really bad. But 
it's not as big of an issue as people think it is. It sticks out to us because when you watch it, it looks so horrible, but it's really not that bad. It's really like less turnovers than some of the other guys. So when you put all that together, like I was really hoping the Celtics could win the finals so that Jalen Brown, I was hoping Jalen Brown would get this finals MVP and that would like solidify him as a Celtics legend and like, you know, all this other stuff. Unfortunately, it couldn't happen this year. I think it could happen next year. You know, we got to, you know, the Warriors had a really easy time this year with um, the Mavericks knocking off the Suns, which kind of made the Mavericks a little bit, you know, they weren't really ready to, to be there. It was kind of just the Suns choking away that opportunity. Um, we saw that play out. You know, I love Luca. He's incredible. But it's just the rest of the team, the whole roster needs a little bit more, you know, more additions, more players, more firepower. Plus Luca, they have to figure out a way to do something with the defense. Speaking of defense, the Warriors had some genius um, things they were doing with Steph Curry. At the end of the series, because a couple of the games Boston had success, they really picked on Steph Curry defensively and went at him basically every time. I thought that was genius. Now, what the Warriors started to do at the end is they would put Steph in the corner, and if you went at Steph, they would immediately double-team. They would immediately send another player over. Now, this should have been an advantage to the Celtics because we should have figured out they were doing that and then created a set movement that would expose the back half of the defense. Um, I don't think we did this. I don't know. I mean, I know the Warriors started doing it later in the series. I wish we had figured out a way to expose that by, you know, figuring out a way to easily get the ball. The problem was we would turn it over on those double teams and like only half the time would we actually get it out and get a decent chance on the other side. And they would try to just shift right back in place. So that was genius. You know, you got to, that's the thing with Steph. It's, he brings you everything on the offensive side. You just have to find out how to hide him defensively. Um, and they, they found some really clever ways to do that. So can't take anything away from that. I think our offense was incredibly disappointing. But again, this current incarnation of the team, you know, a team with Derek White, a team with Rob Williams and Al Horford starting, it's really one year in the making. Like they've really only started this kind of, rotation like this year I mean not that they haven't done it in the past but this is when it became established as a a um a really you know ingrained group you know and have had great success during the year I think another thing that was tough is the injury of Robert Williams when he came back he was good and he was playing well, especially some of the times in the finals, he looked to be almost back to his old form. But the thing was, when he spent all that time out, the Celtics players and the ball carriers stopped. They they kind of got out of tune with the lob, the Rob lob, you know, throwing it up to him for easy dunks. And there were plenty of times in the finals where the Warriors, the only player that could really stop the lob was uh, Kayvon Looney. And when he was off the floor, there was nothing that could stop that, the Rob lob attack. 
but it was just there was there was like at least five or six times I can remember seeing Rob make a cut, like roll to the basket, have a completely clear and open view for a lob, two points, like ninety percent efficiency, you know, on those dunks. And the Celtics just weren't hitting him. And I think it was just they got out of practice because when he was um when he was out, they couldn't do that. So they had to stop looking for that and they had to start finding other ways to score. When he came back, I think it took a while. Um, and I don't think they ever really got back to just understanding that whenever this guy rolls, you have to give him a look. And if he's open, just throw it. Like they never really got back to that. They kind of, um, you know, they kind of, just uh, let that fall out of their repertoire. And I really think that hurt them against the Warriors too, especially when it was so hard for them to get inside twos while driving. That kind of just passing in for an easy dunk, that would have made a lot of things um, simpler, would have increased their shot um, efficiency overall and would have helped that offensive side that they ultimately lost because they could not achieve that offensive efficiency. Um, so in any case, that's that's pretty much all I wanted to say about the NBA Finals. You know, congrats to the Warriors. Um, fuck Draymond Green. I'll say that. I have no qualms in saying that. Any other, you know, pussy ass. I don't want to hear shit from from Steve Kerr about being classy or this or that. You're you're you have a player who's literally playing as an instigator trying to piss people off. Like, so, so fuck all that bullshit. Fuck that. Oh, like, like, you can't be mean to our guy. You're literally being mean on the court and you're effectively cheating and you're effectively manipulating the referees. The amount of times Celtics guys' hands were getting pinned to the Warriors players by the Warriors players and they're falling over, you know, and this is all part of acting. It's all part of gamesmanship. And I don't think the Celtics were really prepared for that, of how physical the Warriors were going to be in crafty ways so they wouldn't get fouls. They're not being actually physical. They're just being sneakily physical, you know. So it's one of those things that you're not, you know, you're not necessarily ready for when you get there because we haven't, you know, this group hasn't been to the finals. Um, but the Warriors did a good job with that. We kind of tried to copy them in the later rounds. You know, Marcus Smart had a couple where he did the same thing, kind of Uno reverse card. And then, of course, you know, the announcers are complaining about how Marcus Smart is a notorious flopper and all this stuff. And it's like incredible, guys. I can see you've been watching the series closely. You know, that's sarcasm, of course. Also, can we just talk about um, Van Gundy and Mark... Jackson. Now, Mark Jackson, he seems like a nice guy. Um, but whenever Van Gundy speaks, I want to rip my ears off and put him in a blender or throw him in a garbage disposal. Literally, I um, there was one game in the entire playoffs I really, really enjoyed watching. And I'll tell you what I did for this game. We were at my friend's house. So when I was watching with my um, my father and my cousin, they were very much, they wanted to hear the game. Now, don't ask me why, because I see no reason why you need to hear the game whatsoever. Um, you know, sometimes you see 
you know, sometimes you hear different players like saying things or you'll hear the ball dribbling off the floor. You'll hear someone if they scream. That's interesting. Um, but the amount of times you actually hear something that you're looking to hear is so um, overshadowed by the amount of pointless jabbering and blabbering on of the announcers that is not only uninformative, some of the time they're completely off, like literally saying the opposite of what just happened, having no clue what just happened, being very biased one way or another, and it swings back and forth, which is odd. You know, but basically everything they say makes me angry for the most part. So I was at a friend's house and I got them to mute the television and we were playing music in the background of the game. Just some nice, some nice tunes. We were, of course, we were having some drinks, having a good time. That was like the game I enjoyed the most, the entire playoffs. Honestly, it was that game because the announcers are really the thing that makes me the most angry honestly, about the game, because I can't stand to hear someone talking about shit and, and being slightly wrong or wanting to, like, retort, but then you can't say anything to them, because they're in a television, obviously, and they're, I mean, they're not in the television. You guys know what I mean. They know what I mean. They're at the game, fucking, but it's just like, who, pay, like, these guys are probably being paid so well. Who actually likes them? You know, like, my, my uncle said, you know, in a better world, there would be the game feed is one camera and then you could have like simultaneously there's different groups of announcers you'd be able to choose from and they would overlay that audio and sync that up with the game. So it would be like audience choice where you get to choose, you know, I want to see this game, but I want to listen to these announcers or I want to see this game, but I want to listen to no announcers. I just want to watch the game. That would be good. But of course, you know, we live in a system where all the the big businesses are basically oligopolies. So, you know, whoever's hosting the game, they don't, you know, they don't give a shit, whatever it is, NBA or whoever, whoever chooses the announcers for the games, they don't give a shit if nobody likes them. Like, how would they even know, honestly? How would they know if nobody likes those announcers? Like, what if, like, 60% of all the people watching are like, these announcers suck? Like, do they have any way of knowing that? People are watching because of the game. They're not watching because of the announcers. Maybe like one or less than 1% of people are watching because of the announcers. So it's it's funny how that works because it's like they're almost in like an unimpeachable position because you can't even tell the NBA how much they suck um, because you would tell them by not watching the game, but everyone wants to watch the game. You just suffer through that. So anyways, if the announcers piss you off as much as they piss me off, I recommend that you watch the game muted with some music on and you can do something, you know, you can do something a little different too while you're watching. You know, you can listen to an audio book, you can listen to some music, whatever you want to do. Um, I found it to be very relaxing and very enjoyable experience. Like when you just sit and you just watch the players playing, it's, it's magnificent. Like they really, I think you appreciate it a little bit more too. Sometimes the announcers are so casual about what the guys are doing. Like, it's crazy to think of how strong, fast, and athletic these guys are. Um, it's absurd. 
you know, the amount of ground they cover, it doesn't look as impressive on the TV because you can't see how big the court is. But when you see how fast they're moving across it, like anyone who's actually played the sport or just spent, played, you know, any sport, spend some time on a court to see how big it is, play pickup or whatever, like, you know how big that court is and how you got to, you know, to cross those distances as quickly they do with the technical moves that they're doing. Um, it's really incredible. I mean, verging on, you know, you know, beautiful. I hate to go full, you know, basketball stand here, but it's like, you know, I really got to appreciate the athletes when I wasn't listening and just getting mad at Van Gundy every three seconds because he's talking about some absolute bullshit. Um, so, yeah, overall, like, <clears throat> for the Celtics, I think this was a really good season. I think people are – obviously, everyone who's a Celtics fan is disappointed that they didn't win the championship. But, it, again, you know, normally it's, it's – um, very normally it's very uh what do you say it's teams don't just because you make it there one year doesn't necessarily you're gonna make mean you're gonna make it back normally teams don't go over stepping stones where it's like you know get to the playoffs then you get to the semifinals then you get to the conference finals then you get to the you know the the actual finals or i should say you get to the first round, second round, third round, and the finals. Like, normally you don't progress like that. Now, this team kind of has been going in that pattern, despite, you know, there was a few years of, like, regression. The Kyrie years, it's kind of stagnating. Then they had that injury year, like, right after Kyrie left. Um, so that that year, you kind of throw it out because Jalen Brown was hurt, and the roster just wasn't that good at all um you know we had some of the guys that we have now but like rob williams wasn't as developed as he is now um we didn't have al horford back we didn't have Derek white you know we were trying to use like daniel tice as like the starting center and stuff so you know it's there was uh you know a lot of a lot of uh turbulence there but now this team has gone to the finals and they're hoping they can build on that going forward. It would be really crazy if they do win the finals because it would be, you know, a lot of teams aren't normally like this where it's like you get closer, 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 and then you win the finals, like kind of building up to winning the finals. A lot of times it's teams like strike really hot or they have like one year where they do like decent above all expectations and the next year they just take off, you know, or it's, you know, they get a certain trade or a certain combination, then they're immediately good for a long period of time. Like, no, it normally isn't like this sort of slow building process. But <clears throat> I'm hoping the Celtics can continue to move forward. I'm excited about the new players they have. I think the only thing left on their list is, you know, you could add a shooter if somebody's available that's the right price. Also, I think a third big right now would be highly preferable. Um, someone like, you know, LaMarcus Aldridge, DeMarcus Cousins, somebody like that who is going to be able to play, you know, be in the rotation, in the playoffs, get playoff minutes to give Al Horford and Rob Williams a break 
especially in those series where the Celtics want to go big and have both of them have two bigs out there for longer periods of time. You know, a lot of times in the playoffs, the Celtics were able to rely on the one big lineup, which was, uh, you know, fine. And they would kind of start and end with the suffocation of the two bigs, just that defensive suffocation. Um, but it could be tricky if you want to play the two bigs all the time. Well, then it's like, who are you subbing in? When are they getting rest? You know, it, it becomes very difficult from that perspective. And I think all the Celtics players were probably feeling really tired after the after the series and after the season. So, in any case, um, this has been the official Josh Thoughts Sports Podcast. Good to speak with you guys again. I'll catch you guys later.